so Dr. Master is actually going to be out for the next uh, three weeks, so this week and a couple of weeks uh, coming, so I will be, um, Lord willing, teaching and um, I was trying to decide what to do for uh, three weeks, uh, so I figured, well, we'll just keep going with some of the minor prophets. <laughs> so we've looked at um, Micah, we've looked at Amos, who both uh, prophesied at the same time that Isaiah was, was prophesying. Um, so we're actually going to look at, Hosea is another one that, that prophesied at that same time, but if you want to know about Hosea, just go listen to Pastor Philip's sermons from a couple of years ago. Those are great. Uh, we're actually going to look at Joel today. Um, and probably um, next week, and then the week after that, uh, Obadiah and Zephaniah. And the reason we're going to look at those is we're also going to be considering uh, a particular theme that we saw already in Isaiah uh, and that we're going to see in Joel. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, uh, about it in Amos, and that is uh, this idea of the day of the Lord. So um, if you remember, I'll just turn and read. So in Isaiah... Uh, chapter 13, verses 6 and 9, <clears throat> um, he mentions, uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. Uh, so, you know, he's, this isn't an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. And in verse 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So, uh, obviously here, uh, Isaiah is prophesying judgment on Babylon, and he uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, to say this is what's coming. Um, then in the book of Amos, we saw in Amos chapter 5, uh, verses 18 to 20, uh, there's, Amos gives a little bit of a twist on the day of the Lord, because the, the typical understanding of the Israelites was that this was going to be judgment on their enemies. Uh, but Amos actually says the day of the Lord is going to also bring judgment on Israel as well. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? So we see there's a little bit more nuanced understanding of exactly what the day of the Lord is going to bring, right? It's not just judgment on Israel's enemies, um, but it's also judgment on Israel for its own sin. Um, and really... Ultimately, as we'll see, it's judgment on all who are opposed to God, right? It's judgment on all the nations, uh, no matter what their past has been and their past relationship with the Lord. Um, if they're opposed to God because of their sin, then there's judgment coming on them. So this, this uh, idea of the day of the Lord, it's a, a major theme, maybe the major theme of the book of Joel. So the, the phrase itself appears, uh, I think, like 18 times throughout the prophets. Uh, we looked at a couple of them. Five of the times it appears in the prophets are actually in the book of Joel. Uh, so we're going to see how far we can get through the, uh, the first couple of chapters uh, here of Joel. Um, if you're wondering what the other references are, so Jeremiah 46.10, Ezekiel 13.5, Ezekiel 30, verse 3, uh, Obadiah, verse 15, 
Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 and 14, and then Malachi 4, 5. Those are all the references to the day of the Lord. Um, so, first a little bit of background on Joel, uh, and it's a very little bit of background because we do not know much at all about Joel. Uh, the only thing we know about the prophet Joel is really from this book, and all he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1 uh, is that he is the son of Pethuel, and we don't really know who he is either. So, uh, unlike some of the other prophets, um, there's not a lot of background info on him. Um, his name does mean Yahweh is God. So you could say that's probably going to be a theme also of the book. Um, the Lord is God. The covenant, the covenant God of Israel is uh, the one true God. But that's all we know about him. Um, we also don't really know when he prophesied. So... This And it's been dated all over the place. Some people have said as early as the 9th century B.C. Uh, others have said as late as the 4th century B.C. Um, they used to think maybe it was early because he's at the beginning of the minor prophets, right? The 12 minor prophets. But that actually doesn't really tell us anything. Um, some people now think that it was probably uh, after the exile in 586. And uh, the reasons for that... Just to briefly go over that. So in chapter 3, verse 2, um, he says, I will, and this is the Lord talking, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So that might be a reference to the to the. Uh, exile and conquering of both uh, Israel and Judah. Um, same chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. It's possible that there's a reference to the conquest of Jerusalem here. So um, it says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. So that could be reference to, you know, the strangers as in conquering nations passing through Jerusalem. Um, there's also no king mentioned, uh, not at the beginning and even throughout the book, no mention of a king. So it's possible, again, that it's after the exile when there really was no king. Um, and then we also don't see the, the strong denunciations of idolatry like we've seen in uh, in Amos and in Isaiah, or if you read Hosea, you see really strong um, judgment on the, the idolatry of the people and especially the leaders. And we don't see that here. So maybe again, that's an indication that it's later, but we really don't know. Um, we also don't really know where he prophesied. Uh, there are references to Judah and Jerusalem, um, but we can't draw many conclusions. And so some people have actually suggested that maybe that's deliberate uh, because in a sense, this message that Joel gives is we'll see it's it's somewhat re historically rooted because he's going to talk about a specific event that happened but it's also primarily uh a bigger picture kind of timeless everlasting message uh about both god's judgment and then his restoration when there is repentance um so it's a it's a message that's relevant throughout israel's history judah's history the history of god's people even obviously to today. Um, any questions before we look at the actual message of what Joel delivers?
No. Okay. Um, then, yeah, we'll dive in and see uh, what it is that Joel has to say. Uh, I already mentioned the main theme, right, is the day of the Lord. And we'll see that. Um, he's also known for one other passage. Anybody know off the top of your head what Joel is known for or where he's quoted in the New Testament? It is Joel's prophecy of the outpouring of the Spirit that is quoted in Acts at Pentecost. So we'll see that as well. Okay, so what is this day of the Lord um, that Joel talks about? Uh, he's going to start with chapter 1 by describing an actual uh, plague or infestation of locusts. So I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Um, there were, uh, I think most scholars say many, uh, locust plagues that would, would come through the Middle East. Uh, but this apparently is one that is going to be remembered for a long time, multiple generations. And it's like nothing they had seen or heard of before. So there's utter destruction. Uh, verse 4 has these, it almost sounds like four different kinds of locusts, but it's actually probably just four stages uh, of what's happening. Um, but it's going to decimate everything. And it's going to affect their whole society. Uh, so if you look at verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So those that like to drink wine, they don't have any wine, because there's no crop, it's gone. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So the vine and the fig tree, they're supposed to be images of prosperity, blessing from the Lord. Those are uh, completely wiped out. Um, verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The idea here is that, that she lost her husband, right? Uh, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Verse 9, the priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. So not only does it affect those that just like to drink wine, but they actually don't even have wine for the offering. They don't have grain for the offering. They can't bring these offerings to the Lord because everything is wiped out. Uh, it affects the priests. They lived off of those offerings, really. That, that was their sustenance. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up. From the children of man. So you get the picture here, right? It's all dried up. It's all gone. They've taken everything. And the joy of the people also then, right, dries up just as the ground has dried up. Um, we'll see here uh, in a little bit that there may have also been a drought that came after the, the plague of the locusts. So there wasn't even a hope of stuff growing back. Well, what's the... Uh, cause of this plague. Why? 
What's that? It's a judgment. It is judgment. That's right. Um, now, Joel, interestingly, does not actually specify what particular sins. Uh, again, kind of unlike the other prophets, which are very particular in calling out right the sins of the, of the nation. But it is clear because he says, in starting in verse 13, there's a call to repentance, right? Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, and here again is the first indication of the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So the animals, this extends to the animals, even extends to the land itself. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's a pretty desperate situation, right? Quite desolate um, and uh, really somewhat hopeless. Um, and this, as Joel says, is the day of the Lord. Uh, now there is a there is an interpretive question that some people have posed, and that is: Is this talking about a literal locust plague, or is Joel using locust plague as a metaphor or an, um, you know a picture of something else? The reason they say that is because. If you notice in verse 6, he says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. And then, as we're going to see here in just a moment, moving into chapter 2, the picture does definitely transition to what looks like some type of army. Uh, uh, human army or perhaps uh, spiritual army. But it seems to transition uh, from an actual locust plague to something else. So some people think that the locust plague is just a, a foreshadowing of... Uh, uh, the real thing. Um, but I think it's best, and, and most people agree, it's best to understand that there was a real historical locust plague that, um, that damaged much of the land. We just don't know when. Um, a couple of reasons for that. Um, the Hebrew verbs in the first chapter are mostly in the past tense, uh, whereas in chapter 2, uh, at least in the Hebrew, they're actually in a different tense. They're in an imperfect tense. So there's a change. Also, um, the judgment seems to have already come, right? As we were reading that in chapter 1, you got the sense that it's already happened, right? Whereas in chapter 2, uh, we're going to see that there is perhaps the possibility um, of avoiding it. So if you look at verse 12 of chapter 2, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So there does seem to be a shift. So I think the best way to understand this is, yes, there was an actual locust plague that came, but that locust plague certainly is foreshadowing or pointing to a greater judgment that is still to come, right? Um, it, it's helpful. I think Dr. Master has mentioned this analogy before. This is not original to me at all. But it's helpful in, in looking at prophecy especially in the Old Testament, to think of um, 
a, a mountain range. Uh, and to think of it in a couple of different ways. So it's helpful, one, to think if you stand at one end of a mountain range and look at it, it kind of looks like one mountain, right? If they're lined up well, obviously, you know, mountains aren't perfectly in line with each other. But to some extent, if you stand at one end of a mountain range and look, or think of like buildings in a downtown, right? And you look, they look like they're kind of one. But if you go to the side, you notice they're all actually separated, right? And there's multiple mountains in a mountain range, or there's multiple buildings in that line of buildings. So from one vantage point, when we talk about the day of the Lord, it might seem like it's one thing, the day of the Lord, but yet it's actually multiple fulfillments of the day of the Lord. So there was a mini day of the Lord when this locust plague came. There's a greater day of the Lord that comes especially if this was written early and they hadn't been exiled yet. There's a greater judgment that comes upon them. We also know, and we will probably get to this next week, um, but Joel's going to finish with this final day of the Lord that is the actual day of the Lord, which we know as Christians is, is described also in Revelation. Um, the other uh, helpful way to think about an analogy of a mountain range is when you're really far away from a mountain range, the mountains look like they're pretty close, right? But when you when you get into the mountain range and you're driving through it, you realize how vast of a distance there is between them. And so at times, Scripture may describe things um, that look like they are very close together, but there's actually some space or some time between them. Well, actually, we'll see that kind of in the, in the end of chapter 2 when Joel talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then he says... Again, he talks about the day of the Lord coming. Uh, and it sounds like they're going to be right next to each other, but there's actually going to be time between them. So, um, let me start reading in chapter 2, um, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. So there's nothing they can do to stop them. They're just moving forward. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So again, there's this sense of, is this talking about an actual kind of temporal judgment that's going to come? Or is this talking about the, the last days when the Lord will judge the whole earth? Well, it's a little bit of both, I think. Um, 
But notice, uh, we already mentioned this, but the other big theme besides the day of the Lord in Joel is repentance. Uh, so he already called them to repentance in chapter 1. Here again he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So, uh, there is the opportunity for repentance. Uh, and the Lord calls them to repent. Joel calls them to um, to repent. Um, any questions so far? How are we doing on time? Okay. One of the things that I wonder about like in the first chapter, mm -hmm. because I keep up with all the gardening stuff. We're really getting into big trouble in this country where our food and all that, almost every of our fruit and stuff like that is being invaded with these new insects and things that are coming over. I get those reports hmm. from Clemson. Interesting. And even your soft berries now, there's flying that's getting on them. Yeah. And they said not many people like to see little worms in their fruit. But <laughs> don't blame they, them. I don't they like can't to see even it. keep up with them with chemicals. Yeah. And then if you're looking at the news, the like Colorado River's drying up. They can't even distribute that water anymore. And Lake Mead is at its lowest. And I, you know, I think about all these things when you reread those. Yeah, it is. It is something to. I mean, we obviously we don't have a direct word from the Lord on these things. It's interesting too that you know. Uh, some of this imagery, we kind of get it, right? But maybe people that are actually a little bit closer to the earth itself understand this imagery a little better. Certainly any sort of agricultural society would recognize uh, how devastating this kind of a judgment is, right? We're far removed from that in some sense because, you know, most of our food comes to us through the shipping chain and the grocery store and all that. Um, and so we don't quite feel maybe feel this language as uh, urgently or as forcefully as we should, maybe. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's something, something to think about. Any other questions, thoughts on what we've read so far? I'm thankful we don't have lo locust plagues here in the U.S. typically, but it sounds horrible. Well, there are, like... For instance, that pine beetle that's destroying all the pine trees, well, now there's an oak. And if we had our oaks destroyed, can you imagine what our landscape would look like? Yeah, it would not be good. All right. Oh, anything else? All right. If not, we're going to move into um, this last part of Chapter 2. <clears throat> um so, Joel turns now in verse, I'm going to jump to verse 18 of chapter 2, and he's going to describe the response the Lord has when uh, his people repent and turn to the Lord for rescue. Uh, starting in verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered, 
and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. That's said ironically. Uh, and again, I think here now, he's talking about uh, an actual army and not the, the locusts. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So this enemy has done, quote unquote, great things, and the Lord has destroyed him. It's actually the Lord who has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. So again, it's pictures of the Lord's blessing, his provision. Um, verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Um, so, a picture of wonderful restoration, right? And there's actually, I think, hints in here of a kind of a return to the Garden of Eden. So, if you look at um, the verse 22, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, uh, there's a phrase used in there that is only found actually in Genesis 1.11, talking about the Garden of Eden. And then uh, you notice in verse 27, for example, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, I think has this sense of the Lord, you know, with his people in the kind of way that he was uh, in the Garden of Eden. And um, it brings to mind, this is actually a, a, a phrase from a children's Bible um, that I think is just really helpful. It's very simple. But it really captures the whole story, the story of the whole, the whole Bible. All the scriptures ultimately are about God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And uh, that's what the end goal really is. And it will be God's people, those, the, those who are redeemed in Christ, in his place, which will ultimately be a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, which is a kind of restoration of the, the Garden of Eden, and it'll be under God's rule and in a, really in his presence, uh, the Lord with, with them. Um, and then even more, he says, starting in verse 28, this is the passage that uh, is quoted in Acts chapter 2, and it shall, come pass, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Um, there's going to be a, a much more direct relationship with God himself um, through his spirit. Um, let's just look briefly at 
I know we're probably familiar with this, but Acts chapter 2, 17 to 21. The day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So, uh, let me pause in case you don't know. Um, The people were gathered, they heard the preaching of the gospel, and uh, this is when what appear to be tongues of fire descend upon them, and they all start speaking in different languages, and the people there are hearing these different languages, right? Uh, and so some of the uh, those standing by accuse them of being drunk. And so um, Peter says, they are not drunk, as you suppose, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So instead of them being drunk, this is actually what's happening. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, this again is where I, I was mentioning earlier, it's helpful to, to think of uh, a mount, mountain range in terms of the fact that sometimes it sounds like things are, are close together, or it seems like they're close together, when there's actually some, some space between them. And that's, I think, what we see in 28-29, back in Joel, and then moving into uh, verses 30 through uh, 32. It sounds as if these things are maybe, you know, directly together. And there is a sense in which they are both fulfilled uh, at the day of Pentecost, but also then the latter part of this specifically, I think, port- points more towards the future ultimate final day of the Lord. So back in Joel chapter 2, uh, after he talks about the sport, the Spirit being poured out uh, and we know, as Peter just said, that it's fulfilled uh, ultimately through the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection, and then he gives the Spirit to his disciples. Uh, and then in verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. This sounds very ominous, right? The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me pause there. Paul quotes that in Romans 10, 13, when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles alike being saved. Uh, so he's highlighting the, the fact that Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just Israel, not just Judah, those who are descendants of that, that nation, but everyone, Jew or Gentile alike, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, but it's interesting that Joel, if you keep reading, at the end of verse 32, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So it turns out that those who call upon the name of the Lord are actually those whom the Lord calls. I think we, we see here that, and we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, 
the doctrine of election, it's an Old Testament doctrine. It's not just a New Testament doctrine, right? Uh, that the Lord is the one who calls his people out um, and grants them the faith to call upon him. <clears throat> um, notice also, one other thing I want to point out is how the, the salvation of God's people is bound up with his own honor and his own glory, right? Um, it is, I think it is uh, legitimate and right to recognize that, that God loved us and that is a significant reason for his uh, saving us but it also has a lot to do with God loving his own name and his own glory. So uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about, um, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Um, but then in verse 18, and the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So there's both a love and a care for his people, but it's also a jealousy for, really for his own name and his own glory. Uh, verse uh, 17. Um, yeah, verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Sounds kind of like Moses, right? When he's pleading for the Israelites back in Exodus saying, uh, if, if you don't go with us, right? Or if you judge us and, and wipe us out, then the nations will say, the Lord can't keep his people. Um, it's, it's, I think, something similar going on here. Uh, verse 26 and 27, um, when he says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. There is none else. There's this sense of the Lord is doing this for his own glory, for his own honor. And I take comfort in that. I think we, we should take comfort in the fact that um, our salvation is tied to his glory because he does not take his own glory lightly, right? That's an important thing for him. Um, and I know that, that, that my salvation in Christ is bound up in all of that, and therefore we can count on that. Um, okay. We got a few more minutes. I don't want to go into uh, chapter three yet. We'll save chapter three for next week. Um, just as a little preview of it, though, we saw in Amos how Amos started with the judgment of all the surrounding nations, and then he moved in closer to Judah and then Israel. Uh, Joel actually kind of moves in the opposite direction. So he started with this very particular historical thing that happened in Israel, the the locust plague. Uh, he moves it out a little bit wider to sort of broaden or more generalize the judgment that comes upon uh, God's people for their sin, but he's going to actually end, we'll see um, next week in chapter 3, with the judgment on all the other nations. And that, I think, is definitely pointing towards a final, ultimate judgment on the final day of the Lord, although historically there even was some of that that was carried out. Um, but I want to take just a few minutes and see, after all of this, this, this understanding of, or at least a, hopefully a partial understanding or clarifying of what is the day of the Lord. Um, there actually can be, in some sense, many days of the Lord um, that have happened. Uh, what does that mean then for us, though, as Christians in America, in the 
uh, 21st century, like what, why is it important for us to think about what is the day of the Lord? How does it affect our lives and the way that we live? What kinds of things would it um, make a difference in on a day-to-day basis if we were thinking about the fact that there is a coming day of the Lord? Feel free to take a moment to consider one thing is for sure it is coming it is which means we should be ready for it right Um, I don't want to presume uh, in any sort of scenario that every single person listening to me uh, believes the gospel so if you do not believe the gospel if you not trusted in Christ if you're not repented it's clear from from Joel that he's calling for repentance for sin um then you have every right to be very afraid of the day of the Lord. Uh, It is coming, um, and the only way to be spared that judgment is to trust in Christ. What else? What other ways might we? So we need to be ready for it. Those of you that need to leave for choir, feel free to slip out. Considered the day of the Lord, but every day belongs to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, uh, we don't know which day will be our last, right? What about um, prayers? How might remembering that there's a coming day of the Lord affect the way that we pray? I'm not looking for like a right answer. I don't have like a, this is the right answer. You got it, bingo. This is more of an exercise of like, okay, how do we then work this out in our lives? It'd be like less, prayers might be less mechanical. They're clearly uh, dealing with reality, future events. So maybe our, maybe our prayers get even a little bit bigger in scale, right? Grander as we're reminded that, because uh, I think um, I think it's easy for us, not that these things aren't important, but it's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day life of right, being a student, being an employee, um, being a spouse, um, being a, uh, in a family. Those are all important things, right? Um, but sometimes we need to have our, our gaze lifted, I think, a little bit bigger, broader, to remember that there's these grand things that are happening that we're a part of as God's people. Um, we are bound up in this. I think there's, maybe some people feel this a little bit more than others, but there's there's a sense, I think, in which all of us want to be part of something bigger. That's why some of, you know, so many of those sort of epic movies do so well, right? There's just this sense within us as humans that we want to be part of something um, that is big and, and on a grand scheme and, and the Lord clearly says right that he has done great things and he is doing great things and, and we're wrapped up in that and I think it's helpful to remember that and then pray for those kinds of things um, so even in the sense of like what's going on in the world right now um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week um, but in terms of you know 
people that we've seen throughout history and even today, people like Hitler and Putin. And Of course, in some sense, you want them to, to repent and trust in Christ, but you also know if they don't, even if they're getting away with things now, there will be a day of the Lord that comes and they will be judged for it. And I think we can take a little bit of solace in, in that fact and even pray towards those ends to some extent. Lord, make this stop. Bring judgment in whatever way you deem fit on the people doing these kinds of things. Any other ideas? If not, you can just think about it the rest of the afternoon. I have a selfish one, and I looked it out of context. Oh. <laughs> Verse 20 in chapter 2. I'm native. <laughs> about the... Uh... The I northern... deliver the northerner far from you. <laughs> I tell people that when I get surrounded by the Yankees. So but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a great note to end on, right? <laughs> Let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us um, even this week to uh, remember uh, during the midst of our own lives and the details, uh, which are important and you care about them, but help us also, Lord, to remember that uh, there are these big things going on, that there is a day of the Lord coming, um, that sin will be judged, that all who do not repent and bow the knee to Christ will face your wrath and your anger. Uh, and we see just a small picture of what that will be like here. Uh, would you give us, Lord, a burden for those around us um, to tell them of these truths, to pray for them. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that we would all be ready for that day ourselves. Um, help us to trust in our Savior, uh, to follow him. Uh, we pray this in his name, in Christ's name. Amen.